On this podcast, we discuss medical diagnoses and procedures. All of the guests express their own opinions. You should always seek medical advice from a trained and credentialed professional when making decisions about your own health. Welcome to the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast. I'm Emma Cooksey, and I've been coping with sleep apnea since childhood. I didn't know anyone in my life with a sleep disorder, so I decided to start this podcast. I'm here to build community and provide a platform for people with sleep apnea to tell their stories. Together, we can shatter stereotypes and raise awareness. We'll be exploring all sorts of treatment options and lifestyle choices to help you live your best life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey there, it's Emma Cooksey here, and I'm your host. So before we got on to today's conversation, um, I just wanted to share with you guys that Project Sleep have just opened their Rising Voices program to applications. So... If you're not familiar with Rising Voices, um, it's a program where people living with sleep disorders can take a training um, that runs for about six weeks over the summer. Um, And you work with um, Lauren, Project Sleep's program manager, and it helps you to hone your personal experience into a short presentation that you can give in your community, in um, local healthcare settings, because a lot of doctors don't actually know a lot of information about sleep disorders. So it's trying to put patients in front of people who don't know a lot about sleep disorders and make all of the information really relatable because it's all entwined in the person's story. So I did this training and I can't recommend it enough. So if you're just an ordinary person living with sleep apnea and you wonder like what kind of an impact you can make, well, you can make a really big impact. And this is a great way to start along the journey of becoming a patient advocate. So I'm going to put all of the information in the show notes. And if you have any questions, I've done the program and I help them adapt it from a program just for people with narcolepsy to other sleep disorders, including sleep apnea. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly, or there's going to be a link to the Rising Voices application in the show notes. So then aside from the normal sponsor links, I've got a bunch of different uh, links to save money on things in the show notes. So the first is Kawaba sent me a cloud pillow. And I am never really that into trying new pillows because I like the one I already have. But I have to say, I did really love the pillow they sent me. So they also are giving my listeners a 20% discount on this pillow called The Cloud. And I'm a full face mask wearer and I sleep on my side. And I thought that it was really comfortable. But what they do is they send you extra filling for the pillow so you can make it higher or lower. And the idea is that it can suit people whether they sleep on their backside or front. There'll be details and a link for 20% off in the show notes if you're interested in getting a new pillow. So in my conversation that you're about to listen to, we talk a little bit about this product called Nasal Cleanse. And... When they heard that we were talking a bit about the product, they said, well, do your listeners want 10% off and free shipping? And I was like, sure. So there's also a link in the show notes to the nasal cleanse. It's kind of like, I describe it a little bit in the episode um, because Dr. Matheny that I'm going to be talking to has been doing a research study about it with some of his established CPAP patients. So they've been using the nasal cleanse kit which is kind of like a wand with some antiseptic gel and you twirl it in your nose it kind of cleanses your nose before you go to sleep and then they used it in the morning as well and so what they found was um that helped people like they felt more comfortable using CPAP or they thought that it was um it improved their experience of CPAP 
So if you want to try that, there's a link in the show notes as well. So on to today's guest. Today I'm joined by Dr. Keith Matheny, and he's a Vanderbilt-trained otolaryngologist in community practice in North Dallas with an emphasis on rhinology and sleep in adults and children. He has a passion for the business aspects of otolaryngology, as well as new technology, pharmacotherapy, and procedures in ENT. Dr. Matheny holds numerous patents and patents pending on bioabsorbable local drug delivery implants for use in sinus and ear surgery, founding two device companies around these technologies, Septum Solutions and Autologic Solutions. He's also the founder, chairman, and CEO of USENT Partners, as well as the co-founder of Sleep Vigil, a company pioneering the concept of remote patient monitoring for sleep apnea. We're going to talk all about that. <laughs> um, Dr. Matheny has numerous journal publications and has given numerous presentations on his clinical research and on various topics related to the business of medicine over the last few decades. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Keith Matheny. So thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Do you want to start out just by telling people a little bit about where you are in the world and just introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. Sure, Emma. So I'm Keith Matheny. I'm a ear, nose, and throat surgeon in Dallas, Texas, USA. And within ENT, ENT is a broad specialty. There are actually seven different subspecialties that you can do within ear, nose, and throat. And I do primarily sinus and allergy and, of course, sleep, or I wouldn't be here. So specifically where the nose is involved in sleep-disordered breathing. So very, very passionate about that. Uh, take care of both adults and children. And I do a lot of things around my practice, too. So I pretty much... I literally up- don't know how you have time to sleep. <laughs> I don't know how you're getting this much out of every day. But yeah, give us a quick overview of all the other things you're doing. (laughs) Yeah, well, no, I feel like I'm receiving that much out of each day. I mean, I really am having fun at this point in my career. It's it's busy, yes, but um, I love each aspect of it and how it's unfolded. So I'm here uh, where I pretty much where I grew up. I'm originally from Miami, so not too far from you uh, and moved around a lot when I was younger, but settled here by late elementary school and did my education mostly in Texas until I was fortunate to do my surgery training at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, which was just a fantastic place to learn and be exposed to so much. And then came back here about 20 years ago. The, the, probably the best explanation of me and all the crazy things I do around my practice starts with describing the practice that I joined. Um, I joined two fantastic physicians one is still practicing with me Uh, the other one has retired now both ENTs both ENTs exactly and uh, we were in a community setting so we're out in a a large suburb uh, called Plano we're next to Frisco Uh, so these these cities on their own are several hundred thousand people but technically they're suburbs of Dallas proper and so we have at that time were very, very busy. The first week of my practice, I had dozens and dozens of new patients and was already doing surgery by my second week of practice oh, wow. by joining good people that were yeah. so busy and that was just their overflow. But from the business side of things, that that had been neglected. And that's the rule and really one of the passions I have now is helping physicians run better businesses. You know, we go to school, if we go straight through like I did, I was 32 when I started and I had never had one semester, three credit hours of business. And then all of a sudden we're unleashed on these multi-million dollar medical practices. Yeah. And as you might expect, they're run poorly. Mm-hmm. We often delegate uh, the business side of things to uh, people that have been around in our practice for a while. So, and they're also typically nurses very little business training too. It's just they've they've been around the block and dealt with insurance companies or dealt with this role or something. Mm -hmm. And so businesses are not run very well. And and mine was no exception. Um, 
So just by default, because my partners really wanted to spend their time fully in patient care, I took over business operations early on, even before I was fully a partner and made a lot of mistakes, learned from those hopefully, and then made some good guesses, but really transformed our practice into a, a small practice that was busy in spite of the infrastructure into one that was busy because or busier because of how we were organized. Mm-hmm. And so that evolved into consulting at first, uh, other my colleagues around Dallas, Fort Worth, and then that evolved into a much larger company uh, called USENT, one of the companies that that you know about him and that mm-hmm. is a national organization. It's a buying group. It's a formal group purchasing organization because it's very expensive to practice ENT. The average ENT doctor spends hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just on supplies, much of which is in the sleep space, as we'll talk about, no Mm -hmm. doubt. And so as you've learned coming over here and seeing the American healthcare system, which is still, in my opinion, the best in the world, but it's, it's certainly flawed and could be better. That, Um, that totally teases up for my first question. It's more of a story. Um, so yesterday, speaking of the American healthcare system, my husband has his own business. So we always have fairly horrible health insurance just because right. we buy it ourselves and we just yes. go with and touch wood are fairly healthy. Um, so this year we noticed there was a plan that was so much cheaper and didn't cover any of our doctors <laughs> but we were like well I think it's fine we'll we'll just change and it'll be okay so I had to go and see my sleep specialist and I had an yes. appointment with the old guy but he wasn't covered so I looked up and there was one guy in my area who was covered under our new insurance yes, yes. and so yesterday I go up to meet him and I don't start with I'm like the sleep apnea podcast lady because like <laughs> that's just really weird. So I just kind of no- go as, you know, like a normal person. I tell them all my history and everything. Been on CPAP for 14 years, all the things. So he says, okay, let's go through like and do a little evaluation. So he is, I feel like this is pretty typical from a lot of people that I talk to, right? He's board certified in I think internal medicine but pulmonology and um sleep medicine yes very common yes so he listens to my chest and he asked me about have I had my tonsils out and I say yes when I was 19 he looks in my mouth ouch ouch um yeah it was terrible at 19 that's right it was awful um and then he's like okay great and then we talk a little bit more about you know what's going on with me and like you know, that I probably need a new machine and all the different stuff. No questions about my nose. Have I seen any NT? Have I had any procedures on my nose? No looking up my nose or any sort of evaluation there. And I think that's extremely common. And I I guess I just want to start by talking a little bit about why your nose is such an important part of sleep apnea. Thank you for and asking. It. Yeah. Just, and just yeah. like um how you like, I mean, to me, when I've had other ENTs on, they've said like pretty much every person should go and have an evaluation with an ENT if they have sleep apnea. But what's your take on it? Like, should people, you know, have a particular problem and then go, or you think everybody should go and be evaluated, or what's your thought? How yeah. does how does your intake differ from that? No, you well, you you repaid the favor. You could not have teed me up better. And I'm passionate about this topic: how much the nose affects sleep disordered breathing. And Emma, you and I have so many colleagues that that share the same sentiment. But starting with the healthcare system, we have to be careful how we document if a patient comes in for nasal obstruction. And for snoring, if I'm not very careful in how I document that patient's uh, history and physical exam and and somebody at the third-party payer gets wind that they may have sleep apnea, it's very difficult for any routine nasal procedures such as straightening the septum to be approved because when when at, you know, the, in the wisdom of the third-party payer, they look at their algorithm and they say, oh, well, 
snoring and sleep apnea and this and that is not caused by the nose. So we are denying this surgery. When the human body is, we are obligate nose breathers. When we first are separated from our mothers and the placenta is no longer giving us oxygen, we need to breathe through our nose. And one of the first things we check in a newborn baby is that the nostrils are open, that there aren't bony plates in the back blocking the nostrils, just making sure that we can breathe through our nose. Just think when you have a cold or allergy attack and you're trying to eat, how difficult it is to breathe and eat at the same time. So, of course, or just what your experience is for those of us who have super jacked up noses, like just what your experience day to day is. Jacked up, yeah. Yeah. Don't be so technical. Don't be so technical. Jacked up nose. So, it's very important. And of course, it's central in sleep disordered breathing. But uh, yes, unless you're comfortable looking in the nose, and this is a larger problem that the care of the sleep patient is kind of distributed amongst three specialties, ENT and pulmonology and neurology and more. Yeah. And so everybody um, looks, looks through their own lenses, but that's where um, it absolutely needs to be part of the evaluation of a sleep disorder breathing patient, not just the tonsils, not just the size of the tongue, Mm -hmm. not listening to the lungs, which obstructive sleep apnea by definition is above the level of the lungs, right? You, if you're going to skip something, uh, don't skip the upper airway because that's actually where it's happening, not down in the lungs. Right. If you're having um, pulmonary obstruction, that's a totally different disease, right? That's not obstructive sleep apnea. So um, critical from the tip of the nose, the nostrils, the cartilage around the, the tip, all the way back through the, the nasal passages into the throat. Mm-hmm. So basically everywhere that the air needs to go to go through your upper airway what needs to be examined so when i'm talking to a patient just like you gestured i know this is uh, not a video recording but i will go up to the chart the anatomical chart in each exam room and and this is my spiel i will say obstruction in the upper airway can happen anywhere from the tip of the nose all the way down to the adam's apple which is where the vocal cords are And often it's multiple sites. It's usually not a single site. So there's a nasal component. There's an uh, oral component. There's a throat component. Um, Sometimes the sheer weight of our our neck or oftentimes the sheer weight of the soft tissue in our neck as we put on weight under our jaws as we get more mature. All of that can cause restricted breathing or complete collapse of the airway. And so therefore, all of it is a potential area to intervene to help that patient, right? Right. So you're a group of ENT surgeons. For people coming, being directly referred to you for sleep apnea, like do you do testing or any of that? Or they're coming from like, or they're coming separately, like having already seen a sleep specialist or multiple channels. Okay. Yeah. Multiple channels. There's a number of patients that have already seen my colleagues in, in uh, pulmonology or whomever, but I think the vast majority come in for snoring they they don't even really you know they may abstractly know about this sleep apnea word uh, but don't really know what that is and they're coming in usually dragged by their bed partner uh, by their ear Um, it's it's one of those those chief complaints where this the spouse usually comes with the patient (laughs) as opposed to coming by themselves and so they just kind of drop them on my exam chair and say, fix them, please. I I'm tired of sleeping, you know, the sleep divorce where we're sleeping in different rooms and, or if they're trying to sleep in the same room where the the bed partner is not. So they come directly as the answer to your question. And, and on that topic too, you know, if you and I had recorded this podcast, even four or five years ago, I probably would have said the same thing that sleep is a big part of my practice, but Back then, it was quite different. So you asked if we do testing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Now, but five, six years ago, that patient would be drug in by their ear and I would look at their upper airway, including their nose. But then I would order a sleep test typically in lab or I guess five, six years ago, we were starting to do a lot of home testing mm-hmm. too, but elsewhere. Yeah. And so that patient was essentially lost to me in, in most cases, unless they went through the whole evaluation, they were prescribed CPAP, failed that. I may never see that patient again. So 
what has radically changed is bringing that all back in house. So the first step was start was starting to do the home sleep testing. So I was introduced to uh, the technology from what's now Zoll Itamar, the mm-hmm. watch pad testing. Yep. And that's still very, very common and it's wonderfully reliable. It's a, it's a great system. There now are um, some other really amazing home sleep diagnostic tests too, just to be fair. Yep. Uh, but this is what I was exposed to five, six years ago. And so instead of just sending that patient down the street after I did their physical exam for sleep testing and never seeing them again in most cases, uh, unless they failed and came back to me for some type of surgery, now I had the opportunity to do the diagnostic test, um, to talk through it with the patient, and then decide with the patient what was best, whether it was CPAP, and still in most many cases, whether an oral appliance was appropriate. We'll talk about that in a little bit, mm-hmm. or whether they needed some kind of surgery. And again, I'm not talking so much about the historical surgeries, which are trimming of the soft tissues in the throat. We still do that on occasion. Certainly we do tonsillectomies, uh, but surgery really, even as the surgeon is my last resort. Now the asterisk there is unless they need something nasal um, and the third party payer allows me to do that. So working on their nostrils, strengthening the nostrils that may be collapsing or straightening the septum, the dividing wall between the nostrils, uh, removing nasal polyps, which are inflammatory growths that can block the airway. Those types of things can help. Mm-hmm. But most of my patients are either prescribed CPAP or are prescribed a dental appliance. I don't know. I think one of the things from patients' point of view that's really frustrating about sleep apnea is knowing that there's different options, but not having them laid out for you by a one person right like uh, so we're exactly. we're oftentimes people exactly. are talking to me all the time about i go to the one sleep specialist they tell me about cpap and you yeah. then have to go and find yourself a dentist figure out the how your insurance would pay for that it's just really complicated yeah, so i'm again, always really excited when i yeah. meet people like you that have practices that are actually managing to do that that's what you talked about, that fragmentation. It's why we are so abysmal at caring for sleep patients worldwide, but but even in the United States. I mean, what, what are we treating? We're diagnosing maybe 10% of patients that have sleep apnea. That's just yeah. giving them the diagnosis. And then we're probably only treating past three months, 10% of that 10%. Yeah. So 1%. With it, then this is a fatal disease. This is not. And I feel like you no. are getting that. Like, so one of the things I love about working with, um, there's a nonprofit called Project Sleep that I'm on the board with and I, mm-hmm. I work with them. And one of the things I love about them is everybody there gets that this is a major crisis, right? Like, it's yeah. a fatal it is. illness, right? Like, the people are just leaving untreated because it's just all too hard. And we Besides, have to do something about it. We have to, and we're doing a terrible job. So besides head and neck cancer, sleep apnea is easily the most dangerous disease I take care of. And people just think, ah, it's snoring, you know, and it's kind of funny. And yeah, we have to sleep in separate bedrooms and we have to get two hotel rooms on vacation. It's not funny. I mean, it's very, not only is it fatal, sooner than you should naturally die. But all along the way, the morbidity is extreme. We're even seeing more and more data um, about the effect on dementia, the development of dementia, which makes sense. You're you're hypoxic most of the night. So a a third of your life, that's going to have detrimental effects on your brain and your nervous system, just like it does on cardiovascular. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question about the dentist, you're exactly right. I mean, we wanted to have a one-stop shop, but I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. I am not a, a dentist. Right. And dentists go to school almost as long as doctors learning different materials. So I would never pretend to be one. Uh, but I have an outstanding dentist that I work in hand-in-hand with in my office. So after a couple of years of diagnostics, then in in my market here in Dallas-Fort Worth, there are actually several really outstanding sleep dentists, I mean, that are nationally and internationally known. And one of those approached me uh, because some of his 
medical dental collaboratives, uh, some of the physicians were retiring and he had some availability and he approached me with the concept of coming into my office one or two afternoons a week and fitting appliances. We had been referring appliances to him. And that seems like, to well, do six at of, his office. Right. Yeah. So that seems like six of one, half a dozen the other. Absolutely not. So the address, the physical address matters. All right. So the fact that he comes into my office and he is a, and there's some legalities to it, of course, and every yeah. state is different, but in, in Texas, he is a, a contractor, a, a person that I delegate the fitting of dental appliances to under my supervision, under my medical supervision. And that allows the patient to run the dental appliance through their health insurance. Yes. So you alluded to it a second ago when we would send, I would send these patients to the exact same individual, but by going to his other office, then it was out of network or there was no yes. coverage at all. It was cash pay. And what do we think? I, mean, I think one out of 10 patients maybe back then would get oral appliances. And now it's closer to eight or nine out of 10 do because the dentist is in my office. So yeah. it's one-stop shop, number one. Number two, they can run it through their health insurance. and Which is huge. It's huge. Like, like sometimes I talk to people and I feel like you know, saying like, we're not all millionaires. Like, you know, for a lot of ordinary people, if things are not covered under health insurance, they're not doable. You Especially know? Like, after COVID, right? Yeah. I mean, with, with what's going on macroeconomically, uh, everybody has been so affected. You don't have the cash flow yeah. for what's perceived as quality of life. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen a downturn in our sinus surgery, which We've, we have magnificent technology and unbelievable outcomes, but patients are putting up with it simply because they just don't have the money mm -hmm. to meet their deductibles for quality of life for something that's not life or death, or they're, they're spending that money instead on their children. How much more, if you think snoring is just kind of funny and kind of a nuisance, you think, oh, well, I'll, exactly. I'm not going to spend X number of dollars. It's not top therapy. of mind. It's not your no. priority at all. Yeah, yeah. I totally get that. That's how it happened. I have the dentist to thank uh, for yeah. approaching me. And, and since then, I feel like we really have a good, seamless treatment algorithm where there's still a lot of patients. I prescribe CPAP. I don't I don't personally do the DME. I, I send them to some of my uh, great colleagues in, the, in my market. We do the oral appliances, but that's just how, you know, that's just day one. So then... I see these patients, my PA will probably see the patient in about three months. The dentist will see them once a year or whatever. And I'll see the patient once a year. But that that appointment typically looks like, okay, Mr. Smith, Miss Jones, how are you sleeping with your oral appliance? How is the So three months in? in? Three or even 12 months later, Emma. And they'll say, oh, doc, you know, I, I'm not getting punched in the arm as much or we're back in the same bed. So, And I feel like I'm sleeping fine. I'm like, oh, that's great to hear. And then they'll ask me about, you know, something else. And then I'll say, all right, well, we'll see you next year. Well, are they sleeping well or not? I don't really know. And I understand you get all kinds of data from your CPAP machines. But what about our oral appliance patients? What about Literally, our oral appliance patients? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. my next question. <laughs> yeah. So, so the next level that we're just implementing in our practice and many of the, the practices within USCNT around the country is remote patient monitoring and remote therapeutic monitoring for oral appliances so we, for oral appliances for CPAP to be honest uh, for things like Inspire therapy uh, for patients that I might have done a nasal procedure on because oh. we're guessing right now we're literally asking a patient who is asleep if they're sleeping better how in the world do we know the answer to that question right without objective data and so doing using various methods, which it's a whole topic in and of itself, but uh, using various methods to measure true vital signs, you know, respiratory rate, oxygen level, those types of things, we can actually more or less do a informal sleep study every night. So it's not just, so I was thinking you were doing a study just to buy oral appliances. Well, I or, am doing a research project right now. Oh, you're but, doing uh, that. We, okay, because that's kind of yeah. what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. Okay, so, no, but, happy to talk so about for that. all 
so for all your patients, are you currently offering that, that you're tracking people's vital? We've just started to. And, amazing. Well, it is. It's amazing in the sense of what we're finding. Okay. So going back to, we're only diagnosing 10% of people who have. This is not going to be good news. I already know. (laughs) No, no. Right. This is not good news, but it's an opportunity to improve. Right. Yes. So then we're only treating 10% of that 10% more than 90 days because most of them have the CPAP in the closet or whatever. Yeah. Okay, of the 1% that we actually are treating, then we start monitoring them on a nightly basis and we realize how much hypoxia they're still having or how many respiratory events they're still having. Mm -hmm. And that's what's scary because those are theoretically the good ones, right? The other 99% are not good. So this is people using some sort of therapy, either path therapy or oral appliance or something. And those people you're, you're picking this up on. Sometimes. Yeah. So we've just completed a pilot study in, in a cohort of our oral appliance patients. And I'm pleased to say the vast majority of them uh, were very well um, controlled. They're, they had no no significant hypoxic events, et cetera. And we, we monitored them for quite a while, That's night good. by night, for hours. I mean, the entire night. Yeah. But there certainly were a few that demonstrated uh, significant hypoxia down at least into the 70% range, knowing that we had to act clinically. But that allowed us to advance their appliance a little bit further and fix it. Yeah. So... That patient, though, I mean, I admit, and I'm I'm their doctor, right? Last year, the year before that, we probably had that yep. visit where we chit-chatted and they said they're better and their spouse said they're snoring less and they feel better. And we talked about golf or their business or whatever. And I said, I'll see you in a year. And they had a year where they had hypox- significant hypoxia yeah. most nights. And that's not okay, right? So that's right. where the, that's the value of RPM and RTM in the sense of ongoing ability to monitor these patients. And thankfully, the third party payers now recognize that it's good for them, even selfishly. And they recognize the clinical benefit, of course, too. I don't want to. Right. Too <laughs> but critical, also, but it's good. It's good for them because there are fewer. Yeah health concerns related yes. to sleep apnea if the treatment is actually working yeah. whatever it is cpap and it could just be fire. it could like you're saying about the oral appliance it's not necessarily that well that you have to abandon that treatment it's more like maybe the the cpap pressure needs adjustment or Precisely. the oral appliance needs some adjustment it might not even be a big change it's probably not it's probably person, subtle it's a huge change yeah. it's probably subtle but before we had no idea. So now that is the true medical dental collaborative, right? Where we make it convenient for the patient from the new patient appointment through the diagnostic stage. We partner with the patient, decide what treatment path they want. We implement that and we monitor them more or less on a nightly basis. I mean, obviously people miss a few nights here and there, but we get a good, a good picture Picture of what they're doing month by month because this is a lifelong severe disease uh, it's very similar you know our cardiologist colleagues are doing a lot which there's unbelievable amounts of sleep apnea in a typical cardiologist practice too unbelievable but uh yeah <laughs> unbelievable amounts but they're monitoring patients with hypertension high blood pressure and they're seeing the same things the opportunities to tweak all yeah. along the way rather than coming in and seeing the cardiologist annually or even a couple times a year is not the same as every no, day. It's not. And so well, this RPM and RTM is just, it's really an amazing phenomenon. We're very thankful to have it. Could any doctor's practice across the country implement that? Like, is I believe that... so. It's still, yeah. it's still new. You know, these codes yeah. came out in 2019. So back when the world was all perfect, right before COVID. <laughs> so it's, but they didn't really get popular until telemedicine and they're not, they're still pretty well unknown, but yeah, they it became more popular as we started to do telemedicine during COVID. Because um, you weren't able to see people in person. Exactly. So tell me about what the research project is where you're 
Is it to do with chips and oral appliances? Well, <laughs> this one is not, but uh, okay. yeah, we hear rumors in the market that that those kind of devices are are coming out, and those will be really powerful. So, so what we're talking about is oral appliances that have some capability to monitor utilization, perhaps even the actual vital signs. But what we okay. use today are consumer wearables, and there's really not. Okay. So that's in, what you're doing in the research yes, project, okay. Yeah. Yes, we're there. Really, is not currently a clinic, economically viable, FDA approved um, wireless. So it has to be data taken from the patient and transposed to the physician electronically. In other words, the patient can't wake up at two a.m. and do a pulse ox and, yes. and write it on a sticky note and drop it yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. <laughs> because I guess I guess a big part of that 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 we're really hoping for is is people who are truck drivers or you know people pilots pilots and people where they're having to show their compliance like and so obviously with CPAP that's possible but I know that would be a huge change if we had a reliable way of tracking compliance for all appliances it would be huge it's huge that's there's a huge spider web on that too so even from a nasal surgery standpoint as you said, the only thing can really be monitored would be CPAP or perhaps Inspire utilization. Right. But if I operate on a truck driver or a pilot and they have to tell, you know, the transportation authorities or the FAA uh, show their utilization, well, sometimes after nasal surgery, for example, you can't use your CPAP for a couple of weeks. Uh, right. So there's all... so there's all kinds of offshoots of that, what you said. And so a patient yeah. in oral appliance, a patient that has, or if the surgeon even takes into account what they use when they're doing nasal surgery and, and pack the nose or don't pack the nose yep. so that that patient can use their CPAP. And yeah. there's, there's real life economic implications. To Cause it. I, I love truck drivers. So um, like I've had a lot of lengthy chats with not only like I interview somebody on the podcast, but also just, people always email me and whatever and you get into some real situations where people are like I can't like be out for two weeks not earning like uh, you know they work on commission they have to drive those those loads otherwise they don't get paid and so I think that that is really yeah I'm excited for for that change like I'm really hopeful and then another thing that I think is is how I originally found you was there's a company called Nasal Cleanse, thing. and so for people listening that haven't seen it, it's kind of like it's almost like a wand, like it looks almost like a Q-tip, but it's right. got some ridges on it, and you use a special gel, and you kind of like twirl it in your nose to get rid of any any stuff that's up there. And and so the study that you're doing, though, is looking at whether that improves people's experience with CPAP. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And it was fascinating. So you summarized it quite well. So this nasoclins, it's an antiseptic gel. So it has some lubricating effects for sure, but it also broadly cleans the nose from a bacteria, from a virus, uh, from a, even a fungus standpoint, even from a pollutant standpoint. So things that that patients might be allergic to or irritated by. And so what we did in a in a cohort of our CPAP patients, we had them, we cultured them first just to see what what bugs were growing at the beginning. And these were already long-term CPAP users. So these were not brand new yeah. uh, novel users. They were using it successfully again based yeah. on current measures. So you're not having yeah. to deal with people that are having challenges because they're just starting and all that exactly like the you know we all know it takes days days weeks months to really adapt to cpap to begin with so these were chronic users already and we we cultured them and then we had them use it before they put on whatever cpap mask they use whether it was nasal pillows or a full face mask what have you and then also cleanse their nose with the nasal cleanse gel in the morning once they took that off and we just look so at their morning symptoms. and nighttime. Yes. So okay. twice at either end of of the um, CPAP utilization. Mm-hmm. And so 
after just a couple of weeks, we polled them and said, all right, what was your experience like? And then we objectively looked at their uh, utilization. So everybody pretty much used their CPAP every night. But what we saw was an increase in duration. They wore it for more hours. And then when we cultured them at the end, we saw much cleaner noses, both on what we cultured, but even what we examined. Mm. And so we feel like that the overall impression was, I think it was 80 something percent of patients said this made a dramatically positive impact on their CPAP utilization. And so um, what we attribute that to is multifactorial. Yes, the lubricating effects for sure. But we think having the cleanliness, like you alluded to a second ago, um, not having that air pressure drive those pathogens potentially or the irritants further back into the nose made the whole experience more comfortable for them. We're expanding the trial in both the number of patients so we can get a broader spectrum of what the typical nasal flora is in a CPAP patient. Yeah, interesting. There's all kinds of bugs that live in that circuit, even if patients are diligent about cleaning their CPAP circuit. They have different, they have a different colonization than just anyone that walks in off the street. Okay, so here's my question about it. So we're supposed to have, like, we're supposed to have some sort of germs going on, right? Is there good ones and bad ones? Or I don't really know anything about it. Absolutely. Okay. It's very much like the GI tract. There's okay. good good bugs and bad bugs. And that the general term is called the microbiome. Right. And so it's all about balance, just like life, right? Okay. It's all about balance. So you want to have enough of the good good bugs to offset the negative effects of the bad ones. Anything that tips the balance. So think about when you get diarrhea after taking antibiotics that's because the antibiotic has killed the good ones and the bad ones are growing and having a party and making you sick right so this is this is no different or at so least does that's this, what so i guess what I, what i'm asking is are you not killing all the good bacteria oh great question great question Yes, uh, you know, at the tip of the nose, it's not really that important, the balance. You know, there's not the function there is like in the GI tract for digestion, for okay. example. But it's a, that's actually a great question. We don't believe so at all. Okay. Nasoclins folks, they would they would say, you know, we, we wash our hands all the time. We brush our teeth multiple times per day. But we leave this thing in the center of our face essentially untouched. And yeah. so it's just another hygiene method especially in the times of what what do we have the triple pandemic now right and and all three of those viruses typically come in through the nose yeah so uh, it sure makes a lot of common sense to be more hygienic with our nostrils so how so you said you're doing a bigger study we are for a a bigger number of patients to see a bigger spectrum of bacteria viruses etc for a longer period of time to really drill down which factors make it um, make CPAP more pleasant while you yeah. use this regimen? Well, that's great. I'm glad you're doing that. Super interesting. This episode of Sleep Apnea Stories is sponsored by Better Help. How well we look after our mind really affects how we experience life. Therapy has been so helpful to me since I was diagnosed with sleep apnea. It helped me to work through the feelings I had about going undiagnosed for so long. It also helped me to adjust to living with a chronic condition. One of the best things about starting my podcast has been realizing I'm not alone in coping with mental health issues along with sleep apnea. Speaking to a professional therapist has helped me enormously to manage my anxiety and depression. BetterHelp is online therapy and it's much more affordable than in-person sessions. You can get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Emma. That's betterhelp.com slash Emma. Thank mm-hmm. you.
time i feel like things like the u triple p and those kind of like removing a lot of tissue that used to happen a lot more i feel like that's not happening as much now so i wondered if you could maybe like just because i've talked to a lot of people who they've maybe had that done in the past and it helps them for a little while or it doesn't help them at all but some people it helps for a while and then it's like they get scar tissue and like mm, and all that kind of stuff and so i guess i just wanted you to talk a little bit like we've talked about how your patients get access to CPAP or oral appliances. So now I just wanted to talk a bit about the kind of other, we talked a little bit about nasal surgery, but maybe you could speak to some of the different procedures that people with sleep apnea can benefit from. Sure, sure. A little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, we've yeah, probably so, talked for four hours about that, but. Yeah, yeah, sure. But we can, we can summarize 40 plus years of history of that, I think pretty quickly. So, <laughs> So again, sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing is an upper airway disease. So any obstruction potentially uh, can be surgically fixed to improve the sleep apnea. So you're referring to uh, first procedures that were done. They're still done some today, but yeah, I agree with you a lot less frequently than in the 1980s, the 1990s. And the mainstay of treatment back then was the U-triple-P, which is uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. So try to say that quickly three times. Yeah, I can. That's why. That's why we we use the acronym. (laughs) And what it means is trimming the uvula, the little punching bag that hangs down in the back of your throat, and trimming the soft tissue around where the tonsils live, whether the tonsils have been removed or not, to, uh, to create more space and to honestly have less tissue to flap in the breeze which is where the snoring is happening so you hit the nail on the head that works in most patients for a little while but as the tissue relaxes you know those of us that are more mature know it gravity works and so things tend to get floppier and floppier over time and so what we see in those u triple p patients over time the initial benefits really lessen you mentioned scarring too. <clears throat> there are potential problems doing that. Um, if a surgeon is too aggressive at the, the removal of tissue, the patient can end up having speech and swallowing problems where there's too much air leaking uh, through the back of their nose when they're saying certain vowel sounds, for example. Mm-hmm. Or if you're leaning over at a water fountain, sometimes the uh, water can actually regurgitate up your nose. So there's those kind of lifestyle issues, but sometimes the throat, I've seen a couple of patients where there was scar tissue that essentially disconnected the nose from the throat that completely closed off the throat at that level. Those are uncommon, but certainly things that have to be factored in. Over the years, historically, there've been a lot of surgeries described to reduce the size of the tongue, the base of the tongue. Very dangerous working back there, you know, even when we have to do that for cancer. They're and really painful. Very painful, as was the U triple P. Yeah. Very, very painful, just like a tonsillectomy that you experienced at 19. And so those are those are falling out of favor for the the pain and the recovery standpoint, but also the lack of durability of, of the effects. Now, much more invasive surgery is still done by our oral surgery colleagues where the maxilla and the mandible, the upper and lower jaws can be broken intentionally and moved forward. Mm -hmm. And what that does, that drags the soft tissue, specifically the tongue, anteriorly, it pulls it further forward away from the throat. And so in the right patient, that can be an extremely effective long-term fix for sleep apnea. But what has become more, more common, we're still sticking here with the throat and the mouth, would be the Inspire implant. Yeah, so the Inspire implant is really an adaptation of what a patient with chronic back pain might have implanted in their spine. Uh, It's a nerve stimulator. And so the surgeon will implant some of the leads into the nerve, around the nerve that moves the tongue. It's called the hypoglossal nerve. Mm-hmm. And then the imp- the implant is put under the right collarbone, not to confuse uh, a paramedic or someone else 
because looks uh, kind of like a pacemaker, but the it other looks side. like it. But yeah, the cardiologist <laughs> yeah. always put that on the left side. Yeah, and that way it's not confused. And then there's another lead that goes down to the diaphragm. So that machine. So it's it's being able to gauge when the person's breathing in, right? Exactly. Hence the name, inspire. Inspire, so right? <laughs> when you inspire, it fires the the lead around the the nerve to the tongue fires, and it gives the tongue muscle tone. So it's not floppy and falling back and blocking mm -hmm. the airway. And the data on this implant uh, over a long period of time is absolutely excellent. And there's better insurance coverage all the time. And so that is a viable option for many of our patients, especially those that fail CPAP, which, mm -hmm. as we know, is is quite a large number yep. after three months. And so it's that is a surgical procedure that certainly should be considered um, in the algorithm. It seems to me that Inspire has a lot to do with the, getting the right patients who are going to be great candidates for that, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. So there are certain, and, and uh, yeah, I'm far from the expert on that since I don't do it myself, but yeah. there are certain BMI parameters. There's criteria. Yeah, a lot of criteria. Yeah. But assuming that has been met, uh, there's broad insurance, third-party payer coverage now. And it's a yeah. it's a nice tool to have because it's in a very, very effective treatment for these patients. Mm -hmm. And then we have nasal options, okay? So, uh, and these can go hand in hand, for example. <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe for you, Emma. So <laughs> these can go hand in hand with oral appliance patients. Yep. Or again, the, the third-party payers are going to assassinate me for saying this, but many times we need to improve the nasal airflow before a patient can successfully use CPAP. But to me, it's like, why are we saying like this or that, this or that, when you could have like, there's people who do really well with an oral appliance and a CPAP. And there's people who You're do right. well, you know, like, or- with Nasal surgery and oral appliance. I have exactly. many, many yeah. of those. So we have- Again, there's been so much innovation within ear, nose, and throat. It's it's amazing what we have at our fingertips. And uh, the companies have all worked hard to get third-party payment. So we have several options to strengthen the nostrils. So the audience may be familiar with Breathe Right nasal strips. Yep. Um, you know, those are the springs that looks like a piece of tape that you put on the tip of your nose. A lot of athletes yep. wore these, it seems like, in the early 2000s. And it it just mechanically holds your nostrils open. If you stop and think about it or even go look in the mirror and breathe in very hard, your nostrils might collapse. Again, as we get more mature, our cartilage gets weaker uh, in our nose. And so that nostril collapse is a very common, a very prevalent source of nasal obstruction. And so we have at our disposal as ENT physicians some heat treatments using radio waves, radio frequency. Uh, there's a, a really nice well-studied implant that can be placed in the soft tissue of the nose to support the nostrils. It doesn't change. None of these treatments change the cosmetic appearance of the patient's nose, but it prevents that nostril collapsing. So that helps in many, many cases. And did you and say that's an in-office procedure? It, it is. All, okay. all of those procedures can be done in the office and sometimes in conjunction with procedures that we're doing in the operating room. Mm -hmm such as straightening the septum. So a lot of people have heard the term deviated septum. Mm -hmm. The septum is, is part cartilage and part bone, but it's a wall between the two nostrils. And it's kind of the rule, not the exception, that a patient has a bend or a, a jagged edge in their septum. Just even minor bumps on your nose as a kid or playing sports or who knows what, even a baby headbutting you, a pet yeah. headbutting you, can cause a deviated septum. So it's very, very common, but that causes one nostril or both to be very restricted behind the soft tissue of the nose. And, and when we think about CPAP, even BiPAP patients, part or all of the air pressure is being delivered nasally, right? So if the patient has nasal obstruction- Or how should be, right? right? Should be, yeah. So if the patient has nasal obstruction, how in the heck is that going to work? It's not. So of course we have to streamline the nose. I mean, that's simple common sense, even though that's it's really tough, you know, in some third-party payer situations to get that done. Mm -hmm. But 
So are, are the insurance companies, so what is the problem with the insurance company paying for it? Is it that they're saying we want to pay for CPAP only because... Yeah, because this patient has just been diagnosed with sleep apnea and septoplasty, what have you, is not an approved treatment for sleep apnea. Right, because they're looking at it on its own. Yeah. yeah. Right, that's frustrating. And, yeah, so we, we just have to be careful and, and usually... I mean, in fairness to the third-party payers, we usually can go through an appeals process, which takes a lot of time and time away from our patient care to explain that it's two separate, well, it's not two separate issues, but right. but it's two separate levels that we as the clinician need to address yeah. for this patient. And so um, there are some mild sleep apnea patients where it's primarily nasal in origin and and you can fix the sleep disordered breathing by strengthening their nasal valves and mm-hmm. fixing their septum. Uh, the third thing you can do is reduce the size of the turbinates. Um, the turbinates, like the word, it, it comes from like a wind turbine. Those are natural structures inside the nose that filter and humidify the air and uh, also are the first responders to allergy and irritants. So many times they're swollen. When you feel congested during an allergy attack, like someone that's hosting this podcast yeah, um, or during a cold or whatever, your turbinates, that's what's swelling. Mm-hmm. And so there are procedures, again, primarily centered around heat using radio waves to shrink those down. So there, I, I like to describe it as a, a tripod, like you would set a camera on. There are three legs to nasal obstruction, the septum, the turbinates, but also the nasal valve, the nostrils. Mm-hmm. And many times you have to improve all three for a patient to be able to breathe adequately. Mm-hmm. But if you do so in a sleep apnea patient, mm-hmm. you're going to improve it for sure. And in a mild sleep apnea patient, if the nose was the source, you might just cure it. Very much. Way back in the day, <laughs> any sort of surgery maybe had a lower success rate. Do you want to speak to like yeah, the, the, was, the technologies getting better? Not as successful. And mostly it was just tough for patients to recover from. It was yeah. barbaric. And my career is interesting. I kind of span both eras. So we have had so much innovation in the ENT space now, uh, starting with bringing the angioplasty balloon catheter out of the heart and out of the cardiology um, space into ENT in the early 2000s to do sinus surgery in in some patients. But then that really spawned a renaissance of other technologies that improved nasal surgery. So how we used to do this, even as recently as 25 or 30 years ago, it was a very destructive procedure to fix a septum, to do sinus surgery, for example. A lot of tissue was removed. Some patients need it even today. I still do it in in certain types of chronic sinus patients today, but many patients don't need that invasive of a procedure. And so that has also allowed us to start packing the nose less, you know, the kind of the, the I mean, that, this is what I hear some horror stories about. Yeah, it was but, tough for patients, you know. Yeah. We we caused so much bleeding and bruising that we had to pack the nose with all kinds of gauze. Yeah. And so even removing that gauze was very painful and traumatic for patients. In most cases now, we don't have to do that. So we have, after septoplasty, um, and I'm pleased to say that I, I you know brought this to the market, but a very comfortable splint a little straw that's soft and spongy and and it uh, is easy to flush saline through so easy you can to breathe, breathe through. through it at the and same breathe. time yeah what a concept you have no surgery wow. you wake up and you can actually breathe right wow uh, that is so, so, right. so yeah. that's that's good and then again i want to highlight again the colleagues in the space that have developed these other techniques for the nasal valve and in other ways for us to be less invasive mm-hmm but the outcomes in general are also better. So it's the best of both worlds. It's way less invasive and in general, more effective than some of these barbaric techniques we used to do. Yeah. So nasal surgery, yes, it has a bad rap, but when patients give it a fair chance and talk about more modern techniques, can really help. Many things can be done awake in our ENT offices now, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, 
in the OR with all kinds of packing and black eyes afterwards and all kinds of bleeding. It's just mm-hmm. not that way in most cases. Now. So, and then the other that I'm really interested in is the palatal stiffening. Yeah. Do you offer that? Like, you want to tell I me do. about that? I do. Uh, I find just candidly, I do it less because I'm such a fan of oral appliance therapy and my, my patient outcomes, even proved by my recent clinical trial, are overall so good. Yeah. Um, but but let's talk about that because there are patients that are great candidates for that. And I know many of my colleagues around the, the world still do these procedures. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you think, um, and there's a video probably 20 years, but it's a great wind tunnel study. And it just has this membrane kind of like the reed in a saxophone or a clarinet just blowing uh, in this wind tunnel. And if you can imagine that as the soft palate, so the soft part of the roof of your mouth, mm-hmm. when you tighten up where it's attached to the hard part of the roof of your mouth, so the hard palate, when you stiffen that muscle, the soft part can't flap in the breeze as much. And that's what's causing snoring and ultimately causes the airway collapse when the soft palate and the tongue hit the back wall of the throat. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, if you think about the pallet like a sail on a ship. So let's keep that wind tunnel model in mind. If you put more rope right around the mast through the sail, that sail is nice and tight and it can catch the wind and really drive that sailboat. If you, for some reason, had more weight out on the end of the sail, it actually would blow back and forth even worse. And so we saw that there was a technology Again, I'm trying to avoid using brand names here, but there was a technology where uh, the doctor would put some implants into the soft palate. Yes. If they stayed by the bone, again, right by the mast of the sail in that analogy, Mm -hmm. they worked fine, but they often would migrate. Foreign bodies in a thin piece of soft tissue, and our bodies work hard to reject that. Mm -hmm. Just you know, anytime if you've been in a car accident, you have some glass in your skin, you know, that's ultimately going to come out. Um, and that's what would happen with these implants so frequently, or they would migrate. So I feel like people are not using those as much anymore, right? Yeah, those have really fallen out of favor. Okay. Yeah. Those, those came out close to 20 years ago. So what we are doing for palate stiffening is again, the radio frequency, the heat, and we're trying to create a scar There were some other things that were injected, I should mention, Teflon in particular, but that would really migrate and make the problem worse, not better, Mm. right? It would actually cause the snoring to get worse as it migrated to the end, to the uvula or to the end of the... So now what we do in these procedures is just stiffen the soft tissue right by the bone uh, using radio frequency. And that's very effective. Um, It's not uh, covered by insurance because it's for snoring. Right. And uh, snoring in general is is a cash pay business. Uh, insurance companies don't don't cover that unless you. But you find it helpful for apnea. people with sleep apnea. It, it contributes. Yeah. Yeah. It can be helpful because, again, as we said at the outset, sleep apnea is often multi-level. There's some nasal obstruction. Yes, it is. There's some palate obstruction. You may still have your tonsils. The tongue is often a problem. Yeah. And just the sheer weight of your neck. So there's four or five levels that contribute to sleep apnea. So intervening at multiple gives you the best chance at a good clinical outcome. Far as which patients do well with which of those procedures, is it just a case of finding a really expert ENT who is used to doing this to really evaluate what you have going on? Yeah, but I I think... um, you know, ENT is a specialty. It's a, it's just a great group of people. It attracts really good physicians, you know, top of their medical school classes, usually very nice people. Um, so most ENT physicians can perform an exquisitely adequate mm-hmm. head and neck exam. And that includes in many cases, using a flexible scope in the nose uh, and having the patient snore. Closing, closing the nostrils, closing their mouth, and just look at what's happening aerodynamically. Mm-hmm. And that tells you so much about the spots where the sleep apnea is happening. Yeah. Therefore, spots that you can intervene to help it. 
Do you do dice procedures too, or not as much? Yeah, I I don't. I mean, I do it. Yeah, I do kind of those procedures with the patient awake. So, so it's not, uh, you know, we use the flexible scopes all the time, mm -hmm. but certainly when a patient is going through candidacy for Inspire, they have to have that procedure. For yeah. So, yeah. So my colleagues that do the Inspire, they do those all the time. Is there anything else I've missed that you particularly want to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, this has just been fantastic. It's a humongous topic. Right. I um, think we did really well, though. I think we did, but because we... <laughs> We sounded the alarm that we're just not doing an, even an okay job at caring right. for this very serious disease, yeah. despite having a lot of technology that can help. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think it calls for collaboration amongst ENTs and pulmonologists and neurologists and primary care physicians. Um, kudos to industry that continues to invest and develop diagnostic equipment but certainly therapeutic equipment uh, and kudos to the third-party payers in the example of paying for remote patient monitoring remote therapeutic monitoring yes. uh, even though it behooves them uh, from a bottom line standpoint because their patients are healthier they also understand the importance in yeah just patient quality so important right. i really i hope that we're moving towards <clears throat> having that be a very normal part of this but one of the huge parts of it is just this like people just falling away like you know uh you know CPAP therapy or oral appliance or whatever it is they try not working for them and then they just give up yeah. and you know like there's no well how are we going to solve this then and and trying to problem solve it because they're just like they're just not going to bother going back exactly or, or they yeah. feel like they've tried and this is as good as it gets and um it's sure not it's sure not there's well, a lot of emotion thanks this has been really fun thank you thanks so much for listening i love hearing from you if you'd like to be featured in an upcoming episode please email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com that's also the place to get in touch if you just want to say hi or ask a question. Alternatively, you can always reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at sleepapneastories. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. This really helps a wider audience to find the episodes, and I really appreciate it.